chapter 6, Esther chapter 6, and I want to read the whole chapter. Hear the inerrant and fallible word of God. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head, then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken." So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Amen. Father God, we come to your word and we reverence your word. It is our desire to conform our lives to it, and I pray that we would not only be encouraged where encouragement is needed, but, Father, that we would also change where any change within us is needed. I pray that you would anoint me and enable me to faithfully bring your word and that you would quicken this word to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week we looked at Esther's mission impossible and applied chapter 5 to our own impossible situations. And some of you have come to me and said, yes, Pastor, we definitely feel like our situation is an impossible situation. And I really praise the Lord that He has quickened within your hearts a desire to say yes uh, to God's uh, challenges for you to go on. And Esther definitely uh, had a difficult task ahead of her, but the neat thing is, whenever God calls us to a mission impossible, He does not make us do it alone, right? Uh, if we were to write this... Um, uh, mission Impossible thing, we might have uh, written a little bit uh, different. Tom Cruise can do things alone, but God never <laughs> makes us do things alone. He's always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we began to see that in the end of chapter 5, that uh, 
God was already beginning to work through some of his strategy and uh, turning the situation around. It wasn't so obvious yet, but he was already making the preparations that uh, were needed. And on her part, she recognizes in chapter 4 that if God does not come through, she's toast. There is no way that she's going to be able to do this because we saw five things that made this impossible. We saw uh, that she was being asked to admit to this king that she was one of the ones that the king had put under the, under the death penalty. She was being asked to break a law which required the death penalty. She was being asked... Uh, to ask the king to reverse an irreversible law. No king was able to do that amongst the Medes and the Persians. She was trying to oppose the second most powerful person in the nation. And then finally, we saw that uh, she was going to be doing something that could very well strike a blow to the king's pride. And so the cards are stacked against her, and yet she realizes this is a responsibility that the Lord has laid upon me. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do my responsibility. So that's the, the one side of the equation. The flip side of the coin is that there is a mastermind behind this mission impossible. It's the Lord God. And he's working and orchestrating every detail so that our very frail, feeble efforts do not fall to the ground. And uh, we can see this in a number of different ways this uh, sovereignty of uh, God, which is so key. And the first way is a little bit more academic. It's, it's a chiasm, but I think it's important that you understand how chiasms work because there's all kinds of chiasms in the Scripture. And if you don't see how they work, you could be misinterpreting those. Now, in your outlines, if you don't have outlines, I think there's probably more in the back, but in your outlines, you'll see on the back of it uh, two... Uh, chiastic structures there. They're taken straight out of the NIV application commentary. And I've added just a few details to make it a little easier to read, but it's uh, basically Job's analysis. Now, this may take a little bit of thinking on your part, especially if you've not taken literature in, in uh, high school or in college, but I think you'll find this to be uh, very worthwhile. Let me explain, first of all, what a chiasm is, and I'll put this on the overhead here just so you can see some of the different kinds of parallel structures. In poetry, you've probably had to analyze, you know, rhyming, how rhymes work out, and they will have um, an A-A-B-B kind of a, a pattern. To God be the glory, great things He has done, so loved He the world that He gave us His Son. So done and Son rhyme, and since they are rhyming in parallel, they both have the letter A. And then you just go sequentially after that. The next rhyme will be a B, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that we may go in. So sin and in don't rhyme with the first one. They get a B, but they rhyme with each other. So you can see there's two couplets there. That's a, a couplet pattern. Then the next one down is an A-B-A-B pattern. Neither of these are chiasms, but they show parallel uh, rhymes in the way in which they're structured. And so sound on the first line rhymes with the third line and me on the second line rhymes with the fourth so that would be an a b a b pattern and then on i just put the last part of the poem here you can see an a b c c b a pattern now that is a chiasm on the last one but it's just using rhymes now in hebrew uh you'll have not just rhymes you will have well they don't really have uh, rhymes for the most part they do use onomatopoeia but primarily, the parallels are thoughts. 
Okay, it's a, a parallel thought that you'll, uh, you'll see, and you'll find the same kind of patterns here, an ABAB pattern or an AABB pattern, and then you'll find the ABCCBA pattern as well. And if you look at the, the chiasm that's in your outlines there, the, the big long one there, if you look at the A at the beginning, you see that the king gives Haman his ring. Okay? Then the A at the bottom, you see that Mordecai is given the same ring. And so the two A's, they're parallel in thought. Then the B at the top shows Haman summoning the king's scribes. And then the bottom B shows Mordecai summoning, summoning the same scribes. Okay, it's sort of like the second half is a mirror of the first half, but it's reversing that. And if you trace that through, you'll see it doesn't reverse until you get to the point of the arrow, the letter K, right? Which is where he is sleepless in uh, Susa. Now, here's the important thing about a chiasm in Hebrew poetry. In a chiasm, and it's in prose as well. This is prose. It's not even poetry. There are lots of chiasms in Hebrew prose. In a chiasm, the most important thought, the theme thought, is right in the middle of the chiasm. In this case, it's the, the K. It's not like in English. Usually in English, we start off a paragraph with a theme thought and then we amplify on it, or we'll start off with a, a theme paragraph and we'll amplify it in our e essay. In the chiasms, that's not different. They had different ways in which they emphasized truth, but this is one that's very, very important uh, to, uh, to understand. If you look at the middle point of each of those charts, on the first chart, the heart of the chiasm would be chapter 6, The Sleepless Night. And the same is true on the second thematic analysis of the book. Very center is the first nine verses of chapter 6 to be specific. And you might say, well, great, so what? Uh, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a big difference. And let me uh, comment from Job's commentary. It says, by making the pivot point of the peripety, and I, I, I should define that. A peripety is a sudden reversal of what your expected outcome, your anticipated outcome would be. It's a sudden reversal that's changed. And why they use technical terms like that, I don't know. But anyway, it says, by making the pivot point of the peripety an insignificant event rather than the point of highest dramatic tension, the author is taking the focus away from human action. Had the pivot point of the peripety been at the scene where Esther approaches the king uninvited or where Esther confronts Haman, the king and or Esther would have been spotlighted as the actual cause of the reversal. By separating the pivot point of the peripety in Esther from the point of highest dramatic tension, the characters of the story are not spotlighted as the cause of the reversal. This reinforces the message that no one in the story not even the most powerful person in the empire is in control of what is about to happen. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. The Greek translation makes this implicit truth explicit with the statement, the Lord took sleep from the king that night, unquote. And so what the author is doing here, it's just a neat stylistic thing that he's doing. He is showing that even though God appears to be silent, his name doesn't appear in this book, there's no miracles in this book, that God is really at the center of this story. The author of this book sees God's hand in everything. His silent providence, you just see it all over the place. You cannot, you cannot read this book without realizing, now wait a shake, there is something going on behind the scenes to control all of these details. 
And if we were to write the book, as I mentioned earlier, we might uh, highlight uh, Esther and Mordecai, sort of like Tom Cruise, and really amplify upon their characters. What the writer does here is very odd. He leaves out details that we're dying to know about these two authors. He says, that's not the important point. And he gives us details of mundane events that God is in control of in order to highlight uh, the fact that it's God, not man, who is at the center. And what I want to ask you this morning is, God's at the center of this story. Do you recognize him as being at the center of your story? You should, because God is at the center of absolutely everything that we do. And the best way of recognizing that and making him central is not so much having God's name on our lips all the time or having lots of miracles uh, happening. It's wonderful to pray for miracles. No problem with that. But the very best way is by recognizing that God is interwoven in absolutely everything that we do. Rather, he is the one who interweaves everything that we do to accomplish his purposes. He is at the very center in the heart of what we are doing. The same author said, any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. And I think that is so cool. I thought it was worthwhile going through chiasm just to show you uh, how the author is working all of the details of this book out. Now, let's take a look at the amazing scope of God's providence in this chapter. While everybody else is sleeping, except for Haman and uh, the king, God is silently at work behind the scenes. In verses 1 through 3, it shows that God knows how to give just the right touch to accomplish his purposes. Verse 1, that night the king could not sleep. And if you take a look in the margin, it says literally, the king's sleep fled away. So he was sleeping but he suddenly wakes up and he can't get back to sleep for anything. Uh, and one writer humorously supposed that it was because of all the sawing and hammering that was going on outside as Haman was building the gallows. <laughs> you know, I doubt it. I don't know. Who knows? But the, the, the key point is, whether it was that or it was something else, who is the chief giver of sleep and the taker away of sleep? It's God, isn't it? And you see that over and over again in Scripture. I think many times when we have insomnia, I've had insomnia now for the last six months, and finally got a good night's sleep last night. But this is very uppermost in my mind. We need to realize God is in the mundane things like sleep loss. He is in the things that many times we just uh, ignore his, his hand in. It's a part of his providence. And when you cannot sleep at night, I think it's very important that you explore why is it God wants me awake? Does he want me to pray for something? Does he want me to notice something? Is there discipline of his hand upon my life? Why is it that God is doing it? And if you can't find any reason, then pray to the Lord. Lord, I can't see any reason. Open my eyes if there is a reason why I'm an insomniac. But if there is no reason, you use all of the human means that you can, but just say, Lord, you're the giver of sleep. Please give me sleep. Here's some of the phrases that you'll find in Scripture. He gives his beloved sleep. Psalm 127, 2. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. Uh, 1 Samuel 16 talks about David sneaking up on Saul's garrison. And it says they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. The night before David's big battle with Absalom, David says, I lay down and slept. And you think you'd be able to sleep? You know, the whole kingdom's turned against you. It says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. 
And if you're one of the ones that you can sleep great, you just can't get up in the morning. Yeah, you need to use all of the means of, of human responsibility that you can. Get a louder alarm clock, you know, set it all the way across the room so it's harder to get back into bed. But you also ought to say, Lord, wake me up. Help me to get up in the morning. Isaiah 50, verse 4, he awakens me morning by morning. And I know it's kind of a rabbit trail that we're going on uh, down here that's really not the substance of what the chapter is uh, talking about, but it's emphasizing the fact we ought to see God's hand in absolutely every area of our lives. Don't ignore this. Uh, David, when he couldn't sleep at night, many times he said, I meditated upon God's Word in the night watches, you know, or he prayed to the Lord in his midnight watches. Anyway, when King Ahasuerus becomes tired of tossing and turning and punching his pillow, he finally decides he's going to try to get to sleep by having boring reading. And it was a good strategy. I can't think of anything more boring than reading minutes. So he calls his scribe, and they're coming to read the minutes for him. And we'll continue on in verse 1. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now think of the chances of this scribe just happening to pick out the right tablets in which uh, this story would come up that we read about earlier. See, it's not like he would bring an entire book like we have that has several years' worth of uh, records in it. All of theirs were written on clay tablets, and I doubt very much that he would have been bringing up 12 years' worth of clay tablets, which is how long Darius has been reigning. Um, it may be that King Darius uh, wanted, or King Ahasuerus, his other name, he wanted to hear about a given year, but this is five years earlier that these tablets are being, are being read. God's touch can also be seen in the fact that the king is uh, curious about what the reward is. Now, maybe it's not so, um, so amazing because he was going to be assassinated on that day, and so he's reading. This is very interesting. He's wondering, you know, I don't remember doing anything. What happened to this guy? In fact, uh, let's, let's keep on reading. He says... And the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai uh, for this? Now, we see another touch of the Lord here because he could have had a different set of servants who were not on duty back when that uh, assassination attempt happened and the things were communicated. But no, it's the same servants. They know. They've got a good memory of what went on five years before. And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, let's just stop and meditate on that for a moment. It would have been so easy for Mordecai, if he was not looking to the Lord, to be very frustrated over this. Here he's risked his life, he's uh, saved the king's life, and he gets ignored, and Haman, who doesn't deserve anything, he gets elevated to a high and uh, lofty position in the government. And maybe you have been ignored on your job, and somebody less worthy has been advanced to a higher position. And it may appear to you as if God doesn't really care He's not listening to you. He's not hearing your prayers. He's not paying attention. He's not in control. You know, something is uh, going on that it seems like nothing works out in my job. Uh, one of the themes in this book is the illusion that God is silent. I think that's why the author deliberately hid God's name in those four places. But uh, the name does not become explicit. It's because God seems to be silent. He seems to be hidden so many times. And yet, when you look back on life, you can see God was orchestrating even the tiniest details of life. It was ultimately in Mordecai's best interests that God not have him be noticed 
on what he did five years earlier. And now was the perfect timing for that thing to be noticed. You need to have a confidence as well that God's touch is on your life. He's, his touch is on your boss's life or whoever it is that you're dealing with when God brings these frustrating detours into your life. We're tempted to think, no, this, this is not going the way I want, therefore God's not in it. No, God may very well be in it. He is in, uh, well, He is. It's not very well. He, he is in every detail of your life, and we just need to have a confidence that the Lord knows what He is doing. Um, Keith would probably not have chosen to quit his job and start his business if the Lord had not brought about the pressures that he brought. And yet, looking back on it with hindsight, Keith is very grateful for the Lord's nudging and his prodding. Right, Keith? <laughs> And the same is true, you know, in a lot of areas of our lives. Why is it that God has not provided elders yet or an associate pastor or the money for a resource center? We don't know, but we know that God's timing is perfect. Now, before we move on to point three, I think it's worth noting that Haman had insomnia too. So the king's not the only one who's sleepless in Susa. Haman is so consumed with getting back at Mordecai, this is all he can think about. And uh, he just cannot sleep. And I think we need to ask the question, this is nighttime. This is the time that the king's trying to get to sleep and he can't. So what in the world is Haman doing in this palace? I think he can't sleep and he finally gets up and says, well, I might as well collect my thoughts while I'm in the king's palace and be prepared as soon as he gets out so that I can ask him for Mordecai's life. Can God turn the hearts of pagans to suit his kingdom purposes? Absolutely, yes, he can. He did that when the... Exodus happened. He, the text says that he turned the hearts of the Egyptians so that they had favor upon the Israelites. They gladly gave silver and gold. Can you imagine that? <laughs> they gladly gave away all kinds of articles to the Israelites when the Israelites left. And yet God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it says. Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the Lord's hand as rivers of water. He turns it whichever way he wants. Okay, God can control the, even the actions of those who are kings. And we need to have confidence that he has the right touch for your adversaries as well. We have an awesome God that we can, that we can trust. Now, God's strategy is also seen in the timing. The moment the king has finished these words, who do we hear coming into the foyer but Haman? Verse 4, so the king said, who is in the court? Must have heard creaking doors or something or other, somebody coming in. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. I mean, what incredible timing the Lord is arranging here. And uh, I think some of you guys have recognized the marvelous timing of the Lord and his providence in your lives, ironically, from time to time. You just say, wow, what an irony. It's just incredible timing. In fact, some of the stories you've told, you know, are ones that really make your jaws drop open. But the point here is God wasn't just in control of this circumstance. He had to be in control of all kinds of things that were not as obvious before. In fact, he had to be in control of the time in chapter 2 when it seemed as if God's timing was off. No, you're looking back on it, God's timing was absolutely perfect. Actually, it was a pretty bizarre thing because historians say that the king was noted for rewarding people immediately and very generously when they did anything on his behalf. And so this is just too bizarre that this king, his life has been saved and he doesn't reward. But we look back and we say, no, no, God was the one 
who blinded the king's eyes so that he would forget. God was the one who made sure he wasn't rewarded because the timing for that was not yet right. You look back on the things you got frustrated over in life, the times when you've been overlooked, times when God just doesn't seem to be working. You need to say to the Lord, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Your timing is perfect. Anyway, verse 5. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now, even here, I think this is uh, rather uh, remarkable that uh, the king allows him to come into his bedchamber, you know, before he's gotten up and showered and brushed his teeth and everything, if they brushed their teeth back then. But um, the king is so interested in finding out what Haman has to say. He just says, come on in. He invites him in. And uh, they, they start to talk, talk because God wants Haman to be a part of this process. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? What an incredible setup. <laughs> now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Why does the king leave Mordecai's name out of his question? It could be just purely accidental. He's been talking about it and he just assumes the name. Or it could be that the king deliberately is trying to yank Haman's chain. Maybe he's tired of his uh, pride and maybe he wants to see the look on his face when he realizes he's not the one that gets it. We don't know, but we know God's in it, right? God's controlling this because it all has to fit together. Point four, God also takes advantage of Haman's fatal flaw. Now, what was Haman's fatal flaw? Pride, okay? Uh, God doesn't have to make Haman sin for Haman to say the right words. He knows he's a proudful person, and the first things out of his, uh, out of his head are going to be, yeah, everybody's going to like me. The king's going to like me more than anybody else. And pride is a form of self-worship, and when you're worshiping yourself, you're so blinded to reality, you expect everybody else is going to worship you too, right? And so God just knows the way Haman's going to act. But look at the, look at the speech in verses 7 through 11. Haman is setting himself up to receive everything that he hates. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, if you were to ask Haman to list, make a list of the things that he absolutely hated to do or to have happen to him, it would be the list of things he wanted other people to do for him. And I think we can take our cue from this that uh, if you're analyzing the pride of your own heart and you're wondering, how do I conquer my pride? There's many different ways of conquering pride, but one of the ways is simply to serve the interests of others without looking at your own interests. It's, uh, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you will find in the process that your pride is rising up and you're, you're crucifying it, you're putting it under. If you consistently praise others without having to praise yourself, seek the welfare of others, lift them up, seek their interests, what you're doing is you're going to systematically be tearing down the pride that's within. Now, there's many other homework things that you can give for killing pride, but that's one of them. 
He hates it. You can see why he hates it. It's so easy for prideful people to be cast down. Now, verses 10 through 11 show the ironic twist, and we're not told whether the, whether the king deliberately put the knife in and did the twist. Uh, maybe he was unaware of it. He just said, hey, that's a good suggestion, and he applies it to the wrong person, at least from Haman's perspective. But God is definitely putting in the knife and twisting it in these verses here. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And he's thinking, oh man, why did I open my big fat mouth? And pride does that all the time. It sticks its foot in, in its mouth continually. It's very hard for Haman to, to realize he's not the recipient of all of this honor. That's hard enough. But man... To know that this honor is going to be going to his mortal enemy, he's the one going to be giving it, and he has to give it fast, he said hurry, and he has to give it without anything being undone and has to do it in a public way. This must have been mortifying and shameful in the extreme. And we see that it was indeed. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, he probably wasn't even saying it as loud as I was saying it. You know, he probably was saying it as softly as he could get away with it. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. That was a sign of, uh, uh, of shame. Now, we rejoice when we see that Haman has, uh, has this happen to him because we think he deserves to get his comeuppance. But let me just give you a quick warning. If you are prone to pride, I want you to think about this picture here. I want the picture of what's happening to Haman here indelibly imprinted into your mind so that you cannot forget about it because that's exactly what the Lord is going to do to you if you do not crucify and put down your pride. Now, maybe not the same details, but it'll be the same shame, the same humiliation because the Lord says He casts down the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He shames the proud but he gives more grace to the humble. He lifts up the humble. And so keep that in mind. That'll be kind of a warning. Oh, no, I don't want what happened to Haman to happen to me. I'm going to crucify this pride as soon as it uh, comes up. And finally, God's strategy can be seen in the fact that his loyal friends who have been so enthusiastically encouraging him to build the gallows, they've been stroking his pride, they're the first ones to turn against him. Verse 13, when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And he's probably thinking, well, thanks a lot for telling me the obvious, guys. Thanks for pouring, you know, salt into the wounds. But he didn't even have time to respond, and he didn't have time to defend himself or even to, if he was tempted, to take down those gallows, think, oh, maybe I could save myself if I don't let anybody know that I was trying to kill. He didn't have time because immediately they come to get him. God won't allow any time for any changes to be made. In fact, from this point on, it's just like such a speedy demise for this ungodly man. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. It's an incredible reversal. I, I just love the story of Esther. I have ever since I was a, a little child. But you know, all of that came about because the king could not sleep. 
all came about. The destiny of this nation rested on two men not being able to sleep one night. And I think it's a fun story all in its own right, but I want to make three more applications and then we'll quit. First of all, this chapter reflects the story of each one of our lives. Our will being intermingled and blending with God's will many times is inscrutable. In other words, we, we, we can't fully understand how it all works out. How did you get your job? Well, for some people, it was carefully strategized and planned out. But for a lot of people, it's just the end of a chain of a whole series of apparently random events. How did you find your spouse? For some of you, again, it was very carefully planned out. You've had your eye on them since you were six years old, you know, and, and you've pursued. For other people, it was like a coincidental meeting. But even though it appears as if God is silent and you can't really discern that he was there, God's finger was on the pulse of every event that was happening in your life. He knew exactly how to bring things together. I grew up in, in Ethiopia, in the same country that Kathy grew up in, out in Africa. We didn't know each other then. In fact, we didn't even know we'd grown up in Ethiopia till after we started courting. And uh, I came from Canada, she came from Omaha, and we were only in the same college for a short period of time. So how did we manage to meet up like that? Well, God had to slow me down. I wanted to go to Covenant long before then, but I didn't have the money. And I'd gone to PBI up in Canada, so I had to wait six years, very frustrating years, but it was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> But we need to realize, even the frustrations, you know, in terms of timing, are perfect timing. How were you converted? For some of you, um, it was, again, a random event. You were, you know, flipping, I think one person was flipping through radio channels while they're driving in the car, and it landed on a, a, a radio station where the preacher was preaching right to his heart. Now, when you understand the kind of preaching on the radio, that's something. <laughs> you know, God's timing is incredible. But... Um, some people just grew up, you know, they never knew a time when they did not know and love the Lord. But God's finger was on the pulse of every detail of your life. So even though he may appear sometimes to be silent, he is at the center of the story. Another lesson is that often God's path to joy, as one commentator worded it, God's path to joy leads through the swamps of misery and pain. And I think that is so true. And some of you are recognizing this. Some of you have actually begun to thank God for the swamps that you're in. You're not out of them yet. You're still pained. And yet, by faith, you've been given such a picture of God's sovereignty where you've been able to say, Lord, I thank you for the difficulties, the pains, the sickness, the other things that you've brought into my life because I know you're bringing something out of it that is beautiful. In fact, we need to be able to come to the place where instead of getting frustrated when God puts a detour, we say, Cool, Lord. I don't know what you're doing. This is sure painful, but I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming out of this. See, it is a Christmas present, okay? And you can't open it up yet to see what's coming out. But when you open it up, you'll say, yes, it was worth it. It was perfect. One last application is that history itself has a chiasm just like this book does. It begins with paradise lost. It ends with paradise regained. The next thing in Genesis is that there is a restoration and the next to last thing in Revelation is that there's a falling away. There's a thousand years, you know, of things getting worse and worse in Genesis and there's, 
you know, the thousand years of things being great and the gospel influence. You look at history and you will see that it is a, a chiasm, unlike the way many evangelicals look at it, where the great reversal is waiting till the end of history, or if you're premillennial, till a thousand years before the end of history. Now, here's the point that I want to bring out. It's not the dramatic that reverses history, according to eschatology, biblical eschatology. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, which stands at the center of history, that reverses the curse of sin. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that makes all of the difference. Now, here's the irony. Just like in this story, that sleepless night, does anybody know about it? I mean, it's so unrecognized, it's so, uh, it's so backward that people might think, is that really the, the great reversal? Well, you analyze the story, absolutely, yes it is. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the great reversal, even though it maybe would not have been recognized as such at the time. There had been billions of people who had died up to this point. None of them had reversed the story. There had been many crucifixions, and yet Jesus, when He was crucified, even though this was His weakness and His shame, even though this was unnoticed by many, it did not come with a parade and fireworks, that was the reversal of, uh, of history for all time. And I'm going to have more to say about this uh, in, in the, uh, some future sermon, but the whole structure of the book, coupled with the Feast of Purim, stands as a model of kingdom time. Though Purim is the climax of the story, and that's the time later on that ushers in an unparalleled time of peace, prosperity, and gospel influence, that's not the time when all the reversal happened. It was back in this unnoticed, sleepless night. And in the same way, in history, what Purim points forward to is the conversion of the Jews in a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity, a time of unparalleled gospel influence. That's the most exciting time in the world. But that's not the time when history was reversed. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, and we need to be Christocentric. We need to have... Uh, our whole lives revolving around the cross. Everything flows from what he did for us there. Now, I'm just going to quit. Be quiet. I've probably gone on too long, but I hope you can see Esther's got a lot of cool stuff, you know, that you can, you can study through. And hopefully the lesson that we've given today will help you to read it uh, a little and, and get a little bit more uh, out of it. But what I charge you to is to trust God even in the darkest hours that you face. Amen.